Um, this image captured my attention the other day. I saw this, came across it online, and we're going to see it there behind me. This is a photo of this, this quaint little seaside village in Greenland with this gigantic iceberg looming up behind it. <clears throat> it makes for a really beautiful picture, okay? It's a really beautiful scene unless you live in that town, right? Because in fact, everybody there has been evacuated because the iceberg is getting closer and closer and closer to town. So you only have to remember Titanic to get an idea of how dangerous icebergs can be, right? And here's this giant iceberg looming over this tiny little village, just creeping in inch by inch by inch, ready to destroy it. I think the picture caught my attention because sometimes church feels like that. Like sometimes church feels like this, this little village surrounded by this great iceberg that's just creeping in on it, right? A lot of people think the church is doomed. They do. And occasionally churches close down, right? But I have zero doubts about the future of the church with a capital C. I have no doubts. And part of that's historical. You know, the church has lasted for over 2,000 years, and there is no empire on earth that has lasted for 2,000 years. So I'm not panicking. I'm not panicking. And then the other reason I'm not panicked is because, and maybe more importantly, I know that Jesus cares a lot about the church, that Jesus has a lot of confidence in the church. And the reason we know this, well, there's many reasons, but one is in Revelation. The first vision we get in Revelation, the last book in the New Testament, really of the end of time, the first vision that we get, right, is of Jesus, the resurrected and resplendent Jesus in all power, surrounded closely by churches. For all eternity, there's Christ at the center, but right around him is the church. And then in Ephesians 1, we learn why that's going to be the case. Okay, Paul says it like this. He says that God placed all things under his, Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. All right, to stick with the metaphor that we started with, the church, that little village on the coast, is not only going to survive. But when the iceberg crashes down against that church, right, the iceberg is the one that's going to fall apart. That's what Paul's saying here. And the reason we know that is because the same power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead after being dead three days, that same power is now alive and active in the church. And God has appointed Jesus head over everything, over all powers that be in the world for the sake of the church. That's what he's saying in Ephesians 1, right? So the church is going to win. The church is going to win. Let me tell you a story and we'll see if it can serve as a parable for what we're trying to communicate today. Jesus taught in parables. I'll try it as well. This parable is actually a true story. It comes from the book Boys in the Boat. Has anybody read Boys in the Boat? Anybody read that? If, if you haven't, that needs to, to rise to the top of your Amazon wish list, Boys in the Boat. It's about the 1936 Olympic Games. You remember the 1936 Olympics? Anybody remember where they were? Yeah, Berlin, Germany, Berlin, Germany, Hitler's Nazi Germany. And this story tells uh, is about these eight boys from the Pacific Northwest who are going to the University of Washington and they are a part of the crew team, the eight man crew team. They row, they row a crew boat of eight men. Right? And it's the middle of the depression in the United States, as you remember, and these boys are from working families, so they are all extremely poor. 
they're given every, pretty much everything they have to be at the University of Washington in row. That's, that's what they want to most do. So every competition they enter, they're underestimated against big Ivy League schools in the East that have a lot more funding, the, the students are more well-to-do at those schools, but the University of Washington wins. And they go across the pond and they compete in Europe and they, they win there and then they go to the 1936 Olympics to compete against Hitler's unbeatable Nazi crew team. So even though they're constantly underestimated, those boys have something that nobody else has or someone. They have this fellow named George Yeoman Pocock. Pocock is widely celebrated as the greatest boat builder of all time. He, he built these amazing rowing boats and he sold them all over the world. Teams in all parts of the world bought Pocock's boats. But do you know where he made his boats? He made them at the University of Washington. In fact, he made them in this little shop in the back of the crew house where these boys would come to collect his boats every day and take them out to practice. And so as those boys were out on the water rowing Pocock's boats, at the end of his workday, he would come out often smoking a pipe and he would stand there on the dock and he would watch these boys row his boats. And they would come in at the end of the day and he would have a few words to those boys about how they could row his boats faster. I mean, Pocock was a rowing genius. He knew how to row those boats with impossible speed like nobody else did. So here's the thing. Everybody had access to Pocock's boats. He sold his boats all over the world, but not everybody had access to Pocock, right? So which is to say everybody invested in Georgium and Pocock, but the only team that Georgium and Pocock invested in was the University of Washington. So do you think they beat the Nazis? Yeah, I wouldn't be telling this story if they lost, right? I'm a preacher, it only works if they, if they win. Yeah, they destroyed them, right? They destroyed it. It's a great story. Now, most of the time, Jesus didn't explain his parables, but I'm, I'm not Jesus, so I'm going to have to explain it. The love of Christ, we might say, the grace of Christ is widely available, and it's available outside of the church. You know, often it's people and their experience of a, of a taste of the grace of Christ outside the church that brings them to the church to be baptized, right? To experience the full measure of God's grace, right? So there are pieces of Jesus that are available widely and out there, but where is Jesus building his boats? In the church. You know, what team is Jesus investing in? The church. Now, if you were Christ or if I was Christ, we might've picked a different team, right? We might've picked somebody else to invest in, right? But notice where Jesus invests, the church. Uh, let me point your attention to Matthew 16, where Jesus asked Peter and the other disciples, who do the people say that I am? And Peter responds, he gives a couple of different answers. And then he says, but you, Peter, who do you say I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in response, Jesus does not say, great job, Peter. You are Peter and on this rock, I'm going to build my college football team. You know, you are Peter and on this rock, I'm going to build my social media following. You're Peter on this rock, I'm going to build my army, my political party. Now he says, you are Peter, right? And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Of all the teams Christ could have invested in, of all the teams Christ could have chosen, he chooses the church. In fact, think about this. Jesus Christ does not establish a single visible thing on this earth except the church. 
You know, we might call it the visible representation of his invisible kingdom. But even the Bible we only have as a result of the church that wrote it down and passed it down to us. Jesus didn't establish the Bible. Jesus established the church. It is the only evidence we have today, right, right, that he's left behind. He establishes the church. And in Ephesians 3, because he establishes the church with all of his energy and willpower, he gives the church this great task of making the manifold wisdom of God known to the powers of this world. Think iceberg, right? And because that job is so daunting, in Ephesians 4, he gives the church shepherds and teachers and prophets to help equip it for this most important task. All right, so to stick with our metaphor, Jesus doesn't just see the iceberg and hope for the best for the church. You know, Jesus moves into the church. He sets up shop in the church and he frankly doesn't care how big the iceberg is. He's gonna make sure the church prevails. All right, Paul tries to explain this in Ephesians 5. And in fact, he's trying to explain something else, but he ends up explaining this. Paul is trying to explain in Ephesians 5, a passage you're all familiar with, how Christian wives and husbands should interact. But this is what he says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is Ephesians 5, 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ says the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So now here's the question. Is Paul talking about the Christian family here, or is Paul talking about the church? And I think if we were going to ask Paul that question, he would kind of blush and say, well, I was trying to talk about the Christian family, but I just couldn't help myself. Because for Paul, like Christ, it's all about the church. It is all about the church. Specifically, if Christ isn't investing himself in the church, then there is no hope for the Christian family. The church, sorry, is Jesus' priority and because he has his priorities right, there are benefits for other things like your marriage, but that's only because his priority is not your marriage, his priority is the church. And let me try to make this clear. In this very passage where Jesus, or Paul, sorry, is trying to help us to understand how important the family is, he cannot help but remind us it is not the most important thing. The most important thing is the body of Christ. The most important thing is the body of Christ. Does that mean the family is unimportant? No. It means that your job as the leader of a Christian family is to ensure that your whole family has their priorities straight. 
Okay, that their priorities are the same as Christ's, and Christ's priority is his body, the church. Is it any surprise? You know, we're having this crisis of young people leaving the church all over the world. Right? Is it any surprise that so many young people are leaving the church when they grow up in Christian families that do not prioritize the church? Right? Who spend more weekends at baseball games and volleyball games than they do at the church? who spend more weekends at their lake house than they do at the church, who at best can make it here one out of four Sundays. Is it any surprise that those kids are going to grow up and they're going to be great parents who are available to their family, who change more diapers, who coach more baseball teams, but don't care about the church? Is that any surprise? You know, if we had create a generation of kids who are better parents and care less about the church, then we failed. Okay, because Jesus' first priority is not the family. It's the church. It's the church. But that's not a mistake that Jesus is making, getting his priorities out of whack. Look back at our passage here in Ephesians 5. In verse 23, Jesus is not your personal Savior. He's the Savior of the church. You see that? His body for which he is the Savior, verse 23. In verse 25, Jesus loves the church, and he gives all of himself to the church. In verse 29 and 30, he cares for the church like we care for our own bodies, which is kind of funny. Um, I was at, we were passing, driving back from Dallas the other day, and we stopped in East Arkansas at this barbecue shop. It was really good. And in the bathroom, there was a poster of a Memphis barbecue competition from 10 years ago. And the poster said, Memphis, ranked number four fattest city in America. We won't stop until we're number one. That's what I said. Right, which, which I love that, right? Okay, we don't always pour the right things into our body, okay? But Jesus does. Everything that he's pouring into the church, his body is good for her. He's giving everything he has to the church. He is investing in his body right here because the church is not only the hope for the Christian family, but the church is the hope for the whole world. The church is the hope for the world. The Alexanders are a new family in Highland, beautiful new family. David and Amy are the parents. They've got two children. Sadie's the older daughter, and Lane is their son. Really wonderful family. Been here about a year. Lane has Down syndrome. And to see how David and Amy and Sadie love Lane is a really beautiful thing. You want to know the reason they're at, they're at Highland? Okay. The reason they're at Highland, among other reasons, is that when they pull up, Lane runs to church. Okay, if you try to stop David or Amy in the hallway and talk to them while they're with Lane, he will drag them past you because he wants to get to Bible class. Okay, because he wants to get to Bible class so badly. Now, David tells me Lane doesn't love church clothes. Right? He doesn't love the collar. He's getting out of it as soon as he gets home. But Lane loves church. And Lane and others like him are helping us to know as a church we need to do a better job of serving our young people with special needs. And we're working on that in a variety of ways. But for he or she who has eyes to see, there's a lot more that Lane can teach you. Because Lane gets something that the rest of us need to know. And that is that the church is where you should most wanna be. Not because we're perfect. We are going to fail you. The church is where you should most wanna be because it is where Jesus Christ is. Okay, I don't expect you to be here because I'm never going to let you down. I expect you to be here because Christ is never going to let you down. Right? Because Christ is investing all he has right here. He's building his boats right here. So why would you want to be on any other team? 
You know, he's investing all that he has in the team we call the church. Why would you want to play for anyone else? Right? You should want to be here more than you want to be anywhere else. Okay, so why all this talk about church? Why all this talk about church? Well, let me ask you a question. I don't want to ask you this question to feel guilty. It's a question that is convicting to me as well. I want to ask you a question because I think it is the question that this text is raising of us. And that is, if the church is the most important thing to the resurrected Christ, is it the most important thing to you? You say, that's kind of a difficult question to answer. Let me ask it a little more plainly. If Christ is investing all that he can in the church, are you doing the same? Are you doing the same? For some of you, the answer is yes. And I'm really thankful that you're here. For some of you, the answer is no. And I'm really thankful you're here because I don't expect you to be Christ. I expect you to want to be like Christ. And there is a difference there. One of those implies that you've arrived. One of those implies that you're on a journey. And I want you to be on that journey with us here. But for those who want to be like Christ, okay, our investments, our money, how we spend our money matters. And it's a question of discipleship. Now, as for the first 20 minutes of the sermon, as long as I was talking about church, you were on board. When I switched to money, you got a little fidgety, right? Specifically because you're talking about my money, Eric. And it's one thing to talk about money. That's not so difficult to talk about. When you start talking about my money, that makes me a little uncomfortable. I mean, how often at dinner time with friends do you tell them how much you make? or how much you have in debt or savings. I bet you can count on one hand the number of people who know how big your salary is, right? I bet you can count that on one hand because our money is, it is a vulnerable piece of who we are. You know, it, it connects deeply to who we are as well. You know, our money has a lot to do with our family of origin and how they spent money. Our money has a lot to do with the, in, the institutions, the people, the causes that we care about and invest in, including church. You know, our money is often how we get things done in the world. It's our power in the world. You know, I shared in a video a couple weeks ago, our air conditioner in the car went out. How do you think I fixed it? Money, right? I couldn't get in there and crank the right bolts and take the right things off, right? Money fixed it. Money is how you take care of things. And Henry Nouwen, a spiritual writer, makes this profound point. Have you ever thought about the fact that the term personal worth can apply both to the extent of your financial assets or your value as a human being, your personal worth. Have you ever thought about that? And I'll admit, from time to time, I worry about my personal worth. Frankly, I don't worry that often about my value as a human being, but I worry about money. You know, ask Lindsay, she'll tell you. So I am as convicted by what Paul is describing here in Ephesians 5 as any of us. And what he is, what he is describing is not at all about our money. It's about Christ. And what he says about Christ is that Christ invests every single thing he has in the church because the church is the hope of the whole world. And then you can't help but ask yourself the following question. Well, am I doing the same thing? And if I am not, then I am not being like Christ. It's that simple. Okay. Chris and I don't preach about money that often. You wanna know why? It's because you're super generous. You know, we do a special outreach contribution twice a year. You always meet the goal. You usually pass the goal. This is a generous church, right? Okay. But we cannot help but acknowledge that our money is deeply tied to our vulnerability as persons. 
And what we learn about Christ is that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so if there is an area in which we feel weak, in which we feel vulnerable, it is very likely the spotlight of God shining down on an area of our life that we need to step into and submit to him. And there is no denying that for many of us, one of those areas that God is calling us to walk into and submit to him is our pocketbook, which we hold tightly because it is where we are most vulnerable. Well, if you want to learn that his strength can be made perfect in your weakness, then you better step into the light. You got to step into the light. We're raising our budget this year, as you know. I'm done talking about it after this. We're raising our budget. And let me just tell you, I'm not ashamed of it because I believe in this church. And the reason I believe in this church is, again, not because we're perfect. We're going to let you down. But I believe in this church because Jesus Christ does. And it is worth investing in. It's worth investing in. The church with a capital C is going to last forever. How much are you investing in that venture of Jesus Christ? Will you stand as we sing together and conclude our worship? Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend.